Amen. Um, great to see you this evening. It's good that you could all come. It's my privilege and pleasure to come and to try to bring God's word to you. And do you know, particularly after a song like that where we've just said, uh, echoing the words found in the prophecy of Jeremiah, Lord, you're the potter. Uh, you're the one who has absolute right to determine what you will do with the clay. And all of us, as far as I could see, were enthusiastically saying, God, whatever you want to do with me, that's just absolutely fine with me. Indeed, I welcome it. God, I want you to do something with my life. So what an awesome opportunity to preach into where a couple of hundred people have said, God, speak to us through your word, because we're going to listen to whatever you say to us and respond to it obediently. Let's just have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, as we come to your word, we want not just to be hearers of it, we want to become doers of it. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would indeed come and that we would be like clay in the potter's hand. Lord, that you would mold us and shape us individually and collectively to become a vessel fit for your purpose. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the series Building a Healthy Church, uh, looking at Paul's first letter to Timothy. And tonight the sermon is entitled Godly Servants. We're following on from where Colin was preaching last um, Sunday, looking at in chapter 3 on the role of elders, overseers, and deacons. So let's read together there, shall we, in 1 Timothy 3, and we'll pick up at verse 8. Now, I haven't brought a bulletin in, so I don't know what page number that is, but I'm sure you'll find it. It's on the screen behind me. Thanks. It's on the screen alongside me. It's page 1192. Right, we're reading from um, verse 8, but let me just read the tail end of the section on elders as well, because it picks up on that. In verse 7, talking about the elder, he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, by way of introduction, let's think about what it means to serve the servants. You see where I'm going with this as I come towards the, the, the end of my introduction. The word deacon is a transliteration. It's not a direct translation. It's a transliteration of the Greek word dekonios, which simply means a runner or a messenger, or better understood for our purposes, simply servant. The word uh, diakonos, sorry, occurs 30 times in the New Testament. Other words coming from the same root, such as diakonio, to minister, and diakoniai, to ministry occur between them another 70 times. But in the 100 instances in which this word appears in the New Testament, there um, is no trace of a technical meaning relating to the specialized function in the church that we call 
deacon. So how do we explain then the development uh, of this word from its use simply to identify service in all its formats to be used as a title for a particular group of leaders in the church who are recognized by pastors and elders and recognized by the church members as the deacons? Well, there's quite a bit of debate among scholars, but I see the office or the role of the deacon simply as a development from what happened within the growing church in the situation that the apostles found themselves in Acts 6. Um, If you go back to there, you'll discover that with the 3,000 people who came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior on the day of Pentecost and the Lord adding daily to the number, those that were being saved, the apostles um, quite literally ran out of of time uh, to concentrate on the things that were their priority in life, i.e. the preaching of the word and praying. Um, They were serving on tables, and there arose a dispute between uh, the the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows. These two communities coming together in the oneness of the church that is Jesus Christ. And yet, because there was a need for sanctification process to be worked out there, there's a tension arises. And the apostles were trying to attend to the, the daily distribution of food. And it was distracting them from their primary ministries. It's not right for us. Um, It's not only not good for us, but it's not right for us to do this. So we need to ask the church to appoint seven men um, with the qualification that they're full of the Spirit and that they're full of wisdom to serve on tables. They're not called deacons in Acts 6, but I think that we can trace the development of, of this necessity to free up those who are in other aspects of servant leadership but in managing servant leadership to the task of the preaching the word and of prayer. And notice in, uh, in Acts 6, they don't ask for volunteers there. There are quite strict controls in place to, suit, uh, to vet the suitability of those who are to serve the church in this way. Uh, they must be men full of the spirit and wisdom, as I've said. And then once that uh, criteria has been met, the apostles actually lay hands on them, and so they seem to be commissioned to the task of table waiting. So why such strict or rigorous qualifications? Well, as I thought about this week, you know, um, you don't need me to tell you this, but let me remind all of us, the church on earth is the new body of Christ. It's not a human institution. It's not an organization like other human organizations. We are individually saved from our sins and and brought together into the new body of Christ on earth. That's what the church is. And as such, we are God's temple. Therefore, we're a holy thing. The church is a holy thing on earth. And those who minister within it must be holy people. First of all, they must be people who are saved through the work of Christ at Calvary, having repented of their sins, recognizing their need for God, that they come in repentance and faith, and they're born again from above, a work of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, they're also sanctified or in the process of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, who aids them in their quest to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. So in Acts 6, the seven 
who serve on tables, and actually they do much more than that, are assistants to the apostles. That's my assertion. And so it's my assertion here that the people that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy as deacons are assistants of the church, but to the elders. Although they don't have the same authority as elders, uh, we see here that they must meet the very same high standards if they are to qualify as those who can confidently be recognized by the church and its leadership as being able to serve the servants. So in verse 8, we're told that deacons likewise. Uh, And then we'll start to unpack that. So first of all, what are the requirements of those who would serve in this capacity? Well, first of all, let's look at the basics. And we're just going to take it um, verse by verse or partial verse by bit by bit. First of all, they must be dignified. Uh, the Greek word here is the word semnos, for which we have no exact English translation. We have no exact English word, but it conveys the idea of gravity or dignity, or as one scholar says, a seriousness of purpose and self-respect in conduct. I like William Barclay's comment on it. He says, semnos is the word which describes the man who carries himself towards other men with a combination of dignified independence and consideration. The Christian should be semnos. He should ever display in his life the majesty of Christian living. Isn't that a lovely phrase? The Christian servant should display in his life or her life the majesty of Christian living. I guess the nearest word that we could possibly think of is gravitas, that sense of dignity. And deacons and servants in the church must possess this. That works, doesn't it? That if Jesus' holy body on earth as the church is, it requires to be led and served by holy people. It's not a plaything. It's not a hobby. It's not something to be treated in any light manner. So deacons must, first of all, be dignified. Secondly, they must not be double-tongued. You notice that some of these things, as with the elders, are, are, are set in a positive framework and others are set in a negative framework. They must not be double-tongued. In other words, they should be authentic. What you see, or maybe more importantly, what you hear is what you get kind of people. The godly servant does not tell tales either house to house or person to person. He guards his tongue and is dependable on what he says. Doesn't make false commitments or promises. What he says he will do, he will do. Uh, and he makes that promises realistically. If he can't do it, he doesn't promise to do it and then fail. If he does know something, then he doesn't share it if it's going to harm others. Uh, we could spend a considerable amount of time just now going over the teaching in James chapter 3 on the taming of the tongue. Uh, maybe it's, you know, I think it's, it's one of these passages that churches really ought to visit on an annual basis. I'm not quite sure where you would put it in the calendar, but it's just such an important issue, the taming of the tongue. Uh, I know a church not terribly far from here that they actually make it one of the the conditions of membership that that you kind of sign a pledge to say, I will not gossip. 
I will not gossip. Gossiping and whisper campaigns are just as damaging, if not more so, to a church community than adultery and promiscuity. Some of you may want to take issue with me on that, but remember it's your tongue that you're going to be talking to me with, so be careful. You see, the tongue is actually much, much more difficult to control than other parts of the body, than other members of the body, than your hands or your feet, or even your sexual organs. The tongue, we're told in James 3, is the most destructive part, the most destructive member that all of us possess. It's the easiest to use. And actually, sadly, it's one of the last members of the body to stop functioning even towards death. Uh, You can be um, uh, crippled, disabled, dying, and the tongue can still do its deceitful work. You may be sexually pure, but your unbridled tongue can be the destruction of others and yourselves. The inference here is that, you see, a servant's If they pick up a bit of gossip and pass it on, well, within the connotation of James 3, the destructive trail of wildfire and poison claims its victims and ruins reputations. It just amazes me sometimes. Um, Even in church, having been around church for so many years now, it just amazes me just how a little thread of a partial truth, and sometimes not even a partial truth, can just get away. Um, I I won't say what it is, but just over the last couple of weeks, I've I've heard a couple of stories come back to me that relate to me that have absolutely no bearings at all, either on my character or my experience, and yet, um, in fact, one lady actually said to Jeanette one time, I'm really sorry to hear that Rodney's cancer's returned. I've never had cancer. And as far as I know, I don't have it now. Praise the Lord, absolutely, Robert. <laughs> I've got lots of other problems, but not that at the moment. But, you know, just little stories. It was devastating for my wife to be challenged with that. I mean, it, the person thought they were being... There's no truth to it. And even in relation to church business, sometimes, you know, be careful, folks, about what you listen to. And having heard it, please don't pass it on without verifying its foundation. It may mean nothing whatsoever and the servant is not double tongued guards his tongue thirdly they must not lack self control Uh, quite literally this is not addicted to much wine you see addiction to anything would be a bad example to others uh, as well as detrimental to the faith and the health of the individual the bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol But you and I, we all know that it forbids and prohibits drunkenness as the result of overconsumption of alcohol in the sense of becoming dependent on it. Um, Here as above with the elders, the the, the word, uh, the picture being painted for us describes a person who uh, literally sits long with the cup and thus drinks to excess. Now, the fact that Paul advised Timothy to use wine for medicinal purposes. Um, I've heard people using that uh, and that verse alone as a good reason why Christians can use alcohol. Um, 
In the English version and in the original version, it says use a little wine. <laughs> doesn't say full measures or buy the bottle full. <laughs> and it's for medicinal purposes. Sure, the Lord has given us wine to, to make our faces to shine, and, and, and it's there for, for proper use. But, um, and it indicates, just when Paul says there, that total abstinence is not demanded of believers. However, can I just appeal to some of you that there is a vast difference between the cultural use of wine in Paul's day, in biblical days, and the support of the alcohol industry of today. It's particularly relevant, I think, to our day and generation, with so many lives being destroyed by the overconsumption of alcohol, not just personal uh, effects on the body, but what it does in relationships, what it does to the economy in various ways. And I think that Paul's admonition, an example in Romans 14, uh, needs to be applied today in a special way. Paul says in Romans 14 and 21, it is better not to eat meat and drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Deacons must be, as with other elders and those who influence the church, must be people who do not lack self-control in this area. A godly elder or a deacon would certainly want to give the best example and not be an excuse for sin in the life of some weaker brother or sister. Fourthly, still in verse 8, they must not be dishonest. The spiritual attitude, sorry, a spiritual attitude towards money is more important than business acumen. If you're to serve the Lord uh, and handle money in the church at all, it is better that you have a good spiritual attitude towards it rather than um, necessary some sort of business qualifications. Those who handle the church's finances are dealing with money, that's, that's for sure. But, you know, as with all other aspects of church life, it's holy money. It's not their money any more than it's our money. It's God's money. And therefore, it needs to be handled by people who will use it for the expansion of God's kingdom here on earth. And Paul is saying, look, if you're going to have folk serve in some kind of leadership capacity, um, make sure that both within the church and outside the church, they're not lovers or pursuers of filthy lucre. Uh, they must be people who can handle this in a godly sense in terms of the stewardship. I was going to use a couple examples. I, I, I won't go into details on the one of them. I, I once pastored a church where uh, very, very sadly we saw a leader fall completely away from grace in the way that he handled money. He embezzled something in the region of 131,000 pounds from the church over a period of time. Very thing, difficult thing to handle pastorally. Very difficult to handle in terms of, of how you tell the church and, and what you share with the world, if anything. Caused huge amounts of devastation to his friends and family and to us as church community. But it's not just those who handle it in that way. I also know the story of someone who served as a steward, taking up the offering in another church. And it was noticed over a period of time that when the, the offering bags were taken from the one aspect of the balcony, that they seemed to have less money in them when, on the other. And they just thought the folks over here were just poor givers. Until a friend of mine who was the pastor, he put somebody in place one day and just 
as the steward has taken the money out through the, off through the door, he would put his hand in the offering bag and put some money in his pocket and then hand it on. And he was caught red-handed. It's sad. It happens in the church. And people who handle money must be trusted. Again, without going into details, do you know, just occasionally it's, it's terribly sad that even here in Charlotte Chapel that things go missing within the building. Money and property. And maybe there's somebody sitting here tonight who has stolen something from this building. It wasn't yours to take in the first place. If you have done that, can I just encourage you to put it back? Come in repentance and, and say sorry to God. And if you've taken something that wasn't yours, put it back. You shouldn't have slipped your hand into that coat pocket. It's none of your business. You shouldn't have taken that piece of equipment. It's not yours. It's God's. People must become honest. They must not be dishonest. Fifthly, they must be biblically sound. Verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The, the authorized version, the King James Version of the Bible, translates, translates this verse, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Now, the word mysterion, as used in Paul's day, it was used to denote a secret that was unknown to the masses but revealed to the initiated. In the New Testament usage, it signifies the secret of salvation that comes um, through the finished work of Christ on the cross and it's revealed by the Holy Spirit to all of who believe. Now, in our day, the word mystery implies knowledge or understanding that's withheld or not available. But in the Bible, it means truth revealed. So therefore, Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 2 through 6, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Warren Wearsby uh, says, in regard to deacons understanding, any servant in the church understanding the word of God, he says, deacons must understand Christian doctrine and obey it with a good conscience. It's not enough to sit in meetings and decide how to run the church. They must base their decisions on the word of God. And they must back up their decisions with godly lives. He goes on to say, a deacon who does not know the word of God cannot manage the affairs of the church of God. A deacon who does not live the word of God, but has a defiled conscience, cannot manage the church of God. Simply because a church member is popular, successful in business, or generous in his giving, does not mean he is qualified to serve as a deacon. Which takes us to verse 10. Therefore, anyone who would serve the church in any capacity, but particularly in leadership, must be tested. Like we observed last week when we considered the qualities of those who are to be appointed to the noble task as elders or overseers, deacons must demonstrate their maturity before being placed in a position of responsibility. Deacons must also first be tested, Paul says. Paul's intent uh, here is, I don't think, it requires some sort of formal testing procedure, but rather that these men prove their quality over time in the ordinary activities of life and ministry. And after they have shown themselves irreproachable, let them serve as deacons. 
The words, if there is nothing against them, translates two Greek words, which means being free from accusation. It means one who is unaccused, free from any charge at all, certainly one that can be substantiated. Christ-like conduct is required of deacons in character, speech, behavior, integrity, conscience, and sound doctrine. So we go from the basics to the specifics. Here are some, um, there are some questions as to whether uh, women can be deacons. Uh, there's no scriptural ambiguity or cause for misunderstanding, I believe, in the role of women in respect to that of pastor or elders. Uh, we teach in, and practice in this church complementarianism, uh, believing that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but different complementary in function with male headship in the home and the church. That's our position. It's certainly my position. It's the position of the pastors and the elders here. That's what we teach. That's what we practice. The opposing view point is egalitarianism, which maintains that women and men are equal in marriage, religious leadership opportunities, as well as elsewhere. But what can we understand from our text here, specifically in regard to female deacons? Well, there are essentially three views that you need to understand and consider. The first one is that these are women, Paul is addressing women who assist male deacons. Secondly, that these are the wives of male deacons. Now, if that's the case, um, I'm left wondering, I trust you will be, uh, why Paul didn't mention something similar in regard to the wives of male elders. There doesn't seem to be any logic that deacons would be expected to have a higher standard set for them than those who are over them in authority in the church. The, the New International Version translates the word guni as wives, but that's not how it is most commonly translated, although it does mean that, and the word there isn't there in the original text. So I Maybe it's better just to understand that what Paul is saying here is that, that women also. Well, what does he mean by the women? Well, the third viewpoint is that these women are deacons. Now, you may, may want to disagree, but I think the context makes this most naturally refer to women who are acting in the capacity of deacons. Um, and in the first century, they didn't have the word deaconess. It's a later development. So Paul... I didn't have that word available to him. Now that said, I believe that it can and in some ways can mean all three. You see, certainly the truth that Paul seeks to set out and apply here is surely relevant to any woman who would serve within the holy community, whether she's helping the deacons, whether she's married to one of them, or whether she's serving in a leader capacity as one. However you understand who these women are, uh, these female servants, they, we can certainly be sure that they have specific things addressed to them. And so for the female deacons, they must be dignified. It's a repeat of the same word that we saw in verse 8. Semnos, meaning gravity and dignity, a seriousness of purpose and self-respect and conduct. To be without character defect, i.e. holy. They serve within the holy community. Whether you're a man or a woman, you must be a holy person. Secondly, uh, specifically relating to females who serve in the church, they must not be malicious talkers. Different word used from those who are double-tongued. The original word is diabolos. Women who are involved in serving others need to be serious about ministry. Uh, 
not given to slanderous talk. Literally, not devils. For the word devil means slanderer or false accuser. They must be faithful in all they do. Again, however you want to reflect on this, isn't it desperately sad to see the damage that can be done in the local church when the wives of elders or deacons or any woman or any person for that matter gossips and slanders others? Quite literally doing the devil's work. That's what Paul's saying. Quite literally doing the devil's work. In all the churches that I've served in so far, from my youth right through to being the decrepit middle-aged guy I am now, in every church there have been women whose tongues have been unchecked, and when someone has complained about it, the cry goes out, oh, they've always been like that. Well, they shouldn't be. Because if they're in Jesus, they should be coming more like him and less like their parents. I'm going to go as far to say that I believe it ought to be a thing of discipline for the church. In the same way that we would discipline somebody for sexual misconduct, I think we should start to discipline people who slander others, who gossip and talk maliciously about them. It's a serious, serious thing. And if that's your sin, dear sister or dear brother, you have to repent of it because you're doing the devil's work. This morning, Colin did an excellent presentation on, on spiritual warfare from Nehemiah. You know, it's bad enough that we need to fight the enemy who comes at us from without it is so difficult to try to fight the fire that comes from within. And where you hear stories of, well, you know, there's no smoke, but there's fire. <laughs> the sad, tragic reality is it could be the spark from your unbridled tongue that started the whole thing off in the first place. Your tongue's like poison. I've said this elsewhere. Sometimes I wish Christians would just bite their own tongues and poison themselves. Don't be malicious talkers. And, you know, I wonder if there's a subtle indication drawn here contrasting the way that men and women sin with their tongues. Uh, Men must not be double-tongued and women must not be slanderous. But, you know, the application is the same. Get that tongue under control and get it under the influence of the Holy Spirit and use it to build up and not to destroy. I'm going to quote quote a very famous, well-known theologian. It's Thumper's dad from the film Bambi. If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. But that's the first time that's happened in Charlotte Chapel. But it's true, isn't it? If you've got nothing positive to say, with all due respect, shut it. And keep it shut. Don't use it to harm. Uh, women must also be temperate. The word here can mean sober, as not addicted to much wine, as above. But it also means vigilant and sober-minded. Uh, literally, not prone to emotionalism. Um, I, I love being um, beside and among godly women. Um, and when godly women pray specifically for the sins that women commit, as opposed to the ones that they know their husbands or men commit, 
One of the things that godly women will confess to is being over-emotional and using emotionalism as a tool and a mechanism for getting their own way. Women who serve as deacons must not be like this. They must be temperate. And fourthly, they must also be trustworthy. See, these women must be faithful in all their roles in life. Their God-given roles as daughters, as sisters, as wives and mothers. They must be good examples of godly women. There's also some specific for male deacons. You women will be glad to know. Guys, men, you must be, I must be, one woman guys. The challenge for us, and it's not level at the women, although I believe it is an issue for some who would be honest in that way. The challenge is to sexual purity before, during, and after marriage if we're widowed. We must be the husband of but one wife. Um, I know a chap, he went to Bible college with me and And uh, he argued from this verse and verse 3 that the prohibition on Christians having more than one wife only applies to elders and deacons. It's only elders and deacons that need to be the husband of but one wife. But you know, the truth is that if a bloke cannot live in absolute fidelity in marriage, then he cannot be trusted to manage the day-to-day business concerning the bride of Christ. That's what the church is. When a guy leads his wife and children well, a mark of that is that you will observe in the woman she will experience protection, poise, and power. Women, if you allow your men to lead in this way, that's how God will empower you. But if he's an unfaithful flirt in marriage, then his wife will be insecure, she will lack self-confidence, She will feel unloved and never able to trust him. And if he displays these weak traits in church leadership, the church will also lack the security and care that it needs. So I believe that as leaders, male leaders in the church, we need to be singularly devoted to the missus and to the church. Men must also be able to control their family. Now, I just see this as a natural extension of being a faithful husband. You see, the ideal for male leaders in respect of priority in ministry is simply this. I remember as a very young Christian man, God giving me this as the pattern. I've since been able to confirm it with other male leaders and seen the pattern in God's word. The priority comes in, in, in like this. Men, you must first love God and follow him. Men, you must, if you're married, be sure that your wife loves God and she follows him. Men, you must do everything in your power to ensure that your children love God and follow him. And if you've proved yourself righteous and trustworthy and responsible in these three areas, then you can serve the church with whatever gifts and time God has given you. If you can't love those closest to you and manage them, how can you assume that you're capable of leading the church? You can't. And the truth is the rest of us can't either. So that's the the requirements, and then very quickly, the rewards of those who serve. First of all, an excellent standing, um, literally known to be of good character, and good standing with the church and those outside, uh, naturally hate of Christians uh, accepted. 
It really means that you're not debarred or suspended from serving. Uh, They're trustworthy, so they get to serve. You see, service is an immense privilege. This really came home to me powerfully yesterday as I thought about it again. Service is not a right, either either R-I-T-E or R-I-G-H-T. It's a privilege. Do you know that God would trust any of us to serve in his church just simply ought to blow us away. It's not a chore. It's not a burden. It's an immense privilege to serve the church. I was kind of overcome with emotion thinking about this. You know, I'm nothing. (laughs) My family are nothing. I have little, if any, education. God, God condescends to say, I can use you. Wow. It's awesome. It's awesome. I wonder, are you blown away by the prospect that God might want to use you in some menial apparent insignificant way to bring glory to himself and further the purposes of his kingdom here on earth. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 84 verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Here comes the challenge. You ready for this? Lord, I yield myself to the potter's hand. We all sang it. Here's where we find out whether we meant it or not. If you knew that we had vacancies in nearly every aspect of children and youth work, wouldn't you just grasp the chance to get involved? If you knew that we struggled to find people to serve as stewards, technicians, pastoral group leaders, Bible study leaders, and fellowship group hosts, wouldn't you just fall on your knees in humble submission to think that God could use you? If you thought that for one moment taking the gospel message to your friends and family could prevent them spending eternity in hell without God, wouldn't you just be willing to die for the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and his saving love? If by coming together to pray with other believers, you could see the reality of God's heavenly kingdom begin to change the earthly circumstances around us, wouldn't you gather to pray? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? You'd think you would, wouldn't you? But sadly, some of us are waiting to be asked, and not just to be asked to do little jobs. No, our calling in life is to be big and grand. Do you know, you can never be trusted with big things until you've proved yourself faithful in the little things. What a dreadful mistake it is to give someone a job to ensure that they get involved in attending church. What an indictment on your service to Christ and his holy community if you only show up when your name is on the rota or it's up there in lights. And equally, those who are promoted to higher levels of responsibility should never consider themselves too important to do the little tasks. I love to see the elder or the deacon or the pastor who can do the menial stuff if it's required. Stacking chairs is my favorite test. It just absolutely is. In every church I've been in, the chairs need stacking. Who's going to do it? Oh, not the important people who have things to talk about to the other important people. (laughs) 
in a former church. I was busy as the pastor stacking chairs one time, and there's this guy sitting on a chair telling me how to do it properly. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know there are some reasons why some people couldn't stack chairs, profound physical or mental disabilities, but there's no excuse for the rest of us. So from an excellent standing, they come to that place of assurance of faith. There's literally great confidence in the faith. You see, the second reward is this. Confidence in the security of the relationship with God so that no matter who or what comes against them in life, they are unwavering. The person who has not developed over time is like the unstable man in James 1 who gets blown back and forth between faith and doubt like a wave of the sea or is like the unstable person in Ephesians 4 who falls prey to the cunning and the crafting teachers in their evil schemes. So an aspect of the reward of those who have served well reveals a big and unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 1 and 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for Jews and then for the Gentiles. So finally, deacons, in conclusion, deacons must be godly role models. Colin and I were chatting over this passage the other day, and and I said this, I wrote it, I told you I was going to write it down and quote myself tonight, Colin. Um, just I spoke this out in, in, as Colin was there and I said from the sanctified character flows a commitment to serve I believe that was a God given thing from the sanctified character flows a commitment to serve I'm going to be quite brutal with this guys do you know why we've got many many vacancies in the church that we can't find folk to fill Because people don't love Jesus' church enough. Maybe. You see, Jesus is the servant king. And so it follows that if we become more Christ-like, so our attitude and our character becomes more like his, as does our willingness to serve. Think of the Mary and Martha scenario. Sometimes we can be guilty of hiding behind our busyness So we don't have to deal with the sanctification process of what Jesus needs to do in for us. And he says, Mary has done the better thing. Vitally important. And yet, you know, there is work to do. And there are vacancies in the kingdom of God's service industry. So the challenge for us tonight is leaders, be men and women worth following. Members, follow your leaders as they follow Christ. You see, there are souls to save. And there's a healthy church to be built. Let us pray.